Hello, and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts. See the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Beth White from the Trust for Public Land and Kathy Dickett from the City of Chicago. Beth is director of the Chicago Region Office of the Trust for Public Land. Previously, she was the managing director of communications and policy for the Chicago Housing Authority, chief of staff for Chicago Transit Authority's Chicago Transit Board, assistant commissioner for the City of Chicago's Department of Planning and Development, and founding executive director of Friends of the Chicago River. Kathy is Deputy Commissioner of the Open Space Sustainability Division of the City of Chicago Department of Housing and Economic Development. Over the past 12 years, her division has implemented the City Space and Chicago River Plans and developed and implemented the Calumet Plans, Logan Square Open Space Plan, Chicago Eat Local, Live Healthy, and Adding Green to Urban Design. The Bloomingdale Elevated Rail Corridor stretches about three miles through four vibrant Chicago Northwest Side neighborhoods, and the planned conversion of this corridor into a trail and park will provide unprecedented connections to and among these communities. The recently released Bloomingdale Trail and Park Framework Plan strives to capture and harness the momentum and history of the project while defining a vision for the Bloomingdale's initial development and long-term stewardship. Beth and Kathy are here tonight to provide an overview of the collaborative planning process and to discuss the plan's guidelines to design, implement, and manage a local trail and park with global appeal in the heart of Chicago's neighborhoods. Let's have a round of applause for our speakers. Thank you so much for that uh, generous introduction. So good evening, everyone. Um, we're delighted to be here to talk about the Bloomingdale, um, the Bloomingdale Trail and Park. Uh, which we talk about a lot lately these days. And I'm just curious, by show of hands, how many of you are familiar with the project or have heard of the project? Well, that's great. How many of you have actually been up there trespassing? I won't hold it against you. I don't see so many hands there. <laughs> well, um, tonight we want to share with you where we are on the project. We want to talk a little bit about the role of planners in this 91 million dollar infrastructure public open space um, public private partnership share with you a little bit of the lessons learned to date um, and then some of the challenges ahead and then in the end we're going to uh, tell you how you can help and get engaged in this process we brought with us the framework plan that was just mentioned and we want to pass it around unfortunately we don't have enough copies to share with you but I do think it's worth taking a look at this document. It was the end of phase one, the engineering, phase one engineering and preliminary design, and now we're in phase two, final design. But um, we wanna take you back a little bit and explain how we got to this point and how it is that we're even working on something like this three mile elevated park and trail. So I'm gonna turn it over to Kathy to give you some of that background that started over 10 years ago now. So Kathy's going to tell you a little bit about the project and the planning process that got us. Yes, I am. Okay. Um, well, I have to say, Jamie put this presentation together for Beth and I because we've been at at least two long Bloomingdale events in the last uh, 36 hours, as has Jamie. So anyway, I'm not, uh, so it's uh, a little, I have to kind of uh, adjust myself. So first, I'm just going to, for those of you who haven't been up there, because I assume you know where it is if you've been up there, uh, this is where it is. It's actually the border, if you're familiar with Chicago community areas, it's the border between Logan Square community area on the south and Humboldt community area on the north. And it basically runs right between the two. Right there. And it does end right now at the Kennedy Expressway. Um, but it does go further than that. But our project is going to only go from the Kennedy on the east all the way to where the uh, active rail line runs north and south to the west. And here's a little closer up version, just north of North Avenue. Yeah, it's a little it's a little white on screen there. Oh, there you go. Okay. So. 
Um, and here's a nice aerial of it. So the Bloomingdale um, elevated line is actually on Bloomingdale Street, which is a Chicago public street. So that means that the city actually owns the property underneath, but the elevated line is owned by the rail line. Um, for those of you who haven't been up there, this is what it looks like. This is something you can do. It's actually quite an interesting space. Um, and so the reason that this project came to, let's see, how did planning play a role in this? Uh, actually, way back in 1998, the city of Chicago, Chicago Park District, and Chicago Forest Preserve District developed a plan called City Space to um, uh, create new open space in Chicago. And we measured all of the community areas in the city, 77 of them, and Logan Square and Little Village were the community areas that had the least amount of open space. One, they needed 100 acres to get to the minimum of two acres per 1,000. So um, there were a lot of other things in that plan, but these two community areas really needed special attention. So the city looked, the city uh, and the park district did a plan just for Logan Square and identified not very much land. Um, because Logan Square is very well developed, and um, the community did not want to take out any housing, which you know I totally appreciate. So we looked around and came up with 15 acres of open space, new open space in the community, of which about 12 and a half was in the Bloomingdale line. Um, so then as we got going, we added the Department of Transportation, Chicago's Department of Transportation, because of the fact that it was a railroad. So they're the, they're the agency that really works and has a lot of connections with railroads. Um, and had been also the agency that was pursuing federal money for transportation projects um, that were not just for vehicles. So we passed that plan. We were, um, let's see, up there for the first time in 2003. That plan passed Chicago Plan Commission in 2004. And at the time, we said, you know, the Bloomingdale will take about 10 years to do. And in 2014, you will be riding the Bloomingdale. Um, yes, you will. Because right now, it's a priority of this administration, which is great, which is another reason for planning. You, know, you got to have that stuff in the background uh, when they're looking for things to do. So the other thing is that both the community areas, Logan Square Community Organizations and the Humboldt Park Community Organizations, did quality of life plans, which we think about mostly as visions and value statements of their community. Both of them identified the plan, I mean, not the plan, the um, Bloomingdale line is an important park space in their communities. So it had already some community buy-in and it had city buy-in. Um, so here we are in 2004 saying create a greenway on the Bloomingdale rail line. And we had just identified, you know, what's, what's nice about it, what's cool about it. Uninter uninterrupted separation from cars, so you can walk and bike and not have to stop. It actually had some nice native plants. Big blue stem was um, up there, and it has great views. You know, you're looking down. This one is, I think, from Milwaukee. Also great views over Humboldt Park. But if you see the document, you'll see there's um, all of these things that are much better illustrated than what we did in 2003. But, you know, we got it on the radar. Um, so we passed that plan in 2004, and immediately we started looking at um, vacant land alongside the trail because we wanted to make sure, because again, Logan Square and Humboldt in this area are dense. There's not a lot of vacant land. That's why they don't have any open space at this point. That's why we couldn't find much. But there were some vacant parcels right adjacent to the line, and we started, we identified some of those in the plan because we knew we, knew we would need areas to get up there. Because as you can see right here, uh, the Bloomingdale line is basically bridges and a lot of long rectangular cement bathtubs. And you know, you're not going to repel up the walls, so you have to get up there. So we started buying some land. Um, outright, the city did. But we also worked with um, Trust for Public Land, which does other things, and Beth will tell you. So besides planning, they are like um, a non other nonprofit land conservation organizations that buy land, and then the city or a different public agency buys it from them. Because sometimes we can't act that fast. So this slide shows the property that we first started working on this project six years ago. And we were contacted by the Friends of the Bloomingdale Trail who saw a for sale sign on this vacant lot adjacent to the Bloomingdale structure. They knew of our work in Haas Park on Fullerton and Washtenaw, where we helped the city acquire um, land that doubled the park, and we raised money to help create some improvements there. So uh, Josh Deeth, one of the founders of Friends of the Bloomingdale Trail, knew us from Haas Park and said, would you come buy this land? So 
uh, we went and talked to Kathy and we found out about the plan and so we bought this first parcel. Then we um, helped the city buy a second parcel at that property. Then we worked um, on another area at Kimball. Um, we should probably show you here. So here, here we are at the Y. Um, this is the Kimball property and we're getting a, a piece in the middle here. This is Albany Whipple where we did the first acquisition. And then over here at Milwaukee um, where we helped the city with an acquisition there. What, one of the um, really interesting aspects of that first acquisition is that Alderman Ocasio was the alderman at the time. And he was also chairman of the housing committee and very devoted to affordable housing. These were vacant residential lots, so he was not very eager to give up uh, residential lots unless he could get a commitment for the park sooner than 10 years. So I remember a conversation um, with the alderman saying, I will be happy to support this if I can have a park within a year. So Kathy and I thought, well, how do we do that? And when does that, you know, clock start ticking toward that year. So that was one of the reasons, as Kathy said, that we could step in and move a little faster and buy the property and we held on to it for a while and bought some more property and then with some private funding actually created the first passive park there three years ago until this, the Chicago Park District could put together some funding to build the first set of improvements. So for the Trust for Public Land, we're a national organization. We work across the country to create safe places to play for children and also conserve large national natural areas. Sorry about that for the volume. Um, but for us, this particular park at Albany Whipple, if we had done nothing else on the Bloomingdale, was worth it for us because there are 4,300 children under the age of 10 that live within walking distance of this park. And when you look at how dense this neighborhood is, it would have been a worthy endeavor. This is the park today. This was at the groundbreaking ceremony last summer. Um, the, the land behind the chain link fence will also be added to this park. Yeah, I would say um, there are sometimes on occasion landowners that are not willing to sell. And so, um, yes, and then this owner is one. Um, so we are using condemnation authority, um, you know, very strategically. It is vacant. But it is an important uh, parcel for this park because the park is very narrow. It's not very big, and it really needs to be opened up here. So that takes a lot longer than a private acquisition, but we've been, we're in the process of doing that. So one of the things that um, we did together with the Department of Planning and Development was to create a Bloomingdale Collaborative at the time, we called it that. There were multiple partners, a lot of people interested in this, but it was still very much a plan in this one little park opportunity. So what we did was create a real civic engagement plan or process that was in its nascent stages um, five, six years ago. And then as the City Department of Transportation was exploring funding through U.S. Department of Transportation congestion mitigation and air quality funding, um, we, we asked in that initial RFP, would they include a requirement for public participation that was way beyond what the city typically does. So when we launched the phase one engineering process, one of the places we had one of the first meetings was at the Congress Theater on Milwaukee. We had over 200 people and um, we were joking about how we all performed at the Congress where all these great rock bands play. But it was really amazing the response that we had to the public engagement the other thing we did uh, through a private funder was to have a four-day planning charrette. Was anybody there last October um, at the YMCA? Oh, boy, you missed an amazing, amazing experience. This is, we took over the gym. There are racquetball courts around the gym where we had uh, the designers created a taped version of the viaduct so you could see that it's nine feet wide at its base and they could go put in their ideas inside the viaduct but to get a sense of the scale. They created a 40 foot long aerial photo that people could have a conversation literally by putting stickies on the wall. And that really launched the um, very aggressive public outreach many, many meetings that uh, Jamie Simone, our 
uh, director of urban parks who's sitting in the front has been largely responsible for making successful. And last night we had a public meeting to check in on the 60% design. So we, what we want to do now, if you'll indulge us, is share with you the presentation that was given last night by the design team because um, it was pretty extraordinary what level of information we were, we were able to share. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to design the meeting. Um, we learned lessons along the way that the first couple of public meetings were an hour of, of talking heads, one right after another, telling you about our role, and we'd go from CDOT to, to planning to the Chicago Park District to us, and very little time for questions. And we had a very formal setup with a microphone because we had to have, you know, court reporters. And people are intimidated in that setting, and not too many people want to stand up in front of 200 folks and ask a question. So each meeting, I think we got progressively better and more user-friendly. And I think last night it really culminated in a format that really worked for us. We had uh, 20 minutes of presentation, and then the rest of the time, which was a good hour and 45 minutes, almost two because people didn't want to go home, is that we set up in the field house at Humboldt Park different stations of the trail, and we'll show you what, uh, what that was. But um, we're going to take you through the presentation pretty quickly so we can uh, get to questions, but we, we show our project status slide. Um, as Kathy said, our, our mayor uh, is very clear about his timeline. He committed to this as a campaign pledge. We, um, I have to share one anecdote. We, at the Trust for Public Land, we went around to all the mayoral candidates and said, this is a great project. We've been working on this for a number of years. Will you support it? To a person, they all said yes. Uh, Mayor Emanuel, that at that time, candidate Emanuel, decides to make it a campaign pledge. And they sent us the press release and said, is everything accurate in here? And I said, well, everything except for that you said you could build this in your first term. And what was it that I said that made you think you could do that? And so we talked about what it would take to do that. And one was to release the contract for engineering, which took a while to get through procurement. But he's been very clear that um, this was the public meeting last night. The design will be complete in December of 2012. We will have an open house where we share the design. But uh, we will let the bids in January or February, and construction will begin in spring, summer of 2013. He says spring. We say summer. Um, the Bloomingdale Basics, if you will, will open in fall of 2014, so you can go from end to end safely on the trail. And then over the next year, um, we'll be adding more enhancements. And I actually give the guy credit for being willing to open something up before it's completely finished, because that's what the community wants. So it's a very aggressive timetable. One of the things that we also asked for in the RFP process was to include an artist on the team. There was an artist on phase one that helped really take an assessment of what what's out there in terms of existing art. And in phase two, we have a lead artist. Her name is Frances Whitehead. She is a sculptor who works at a landscape scale. And she really treats this as a living work of art, which you'll see in the framework plan was one of the objectives that the planners inserted into the plan. So last night, I cannot do justice to this presentation, but she came up with one, two, three, four, five, six big ideas. And then she takes you through the big ideas. And what we're doing is art at all levels. Art is integrated throughout the project. But there will be six plazas for music venues, performance, poetry, observatory, picnic area, art plaza. Five RFPs will be administered for work that will include some of the billboards, material art, amenities, interpretive. There'll be commissions where uh, we're working with um, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. We have uh, submitted requests for concepts from a juried selection of artists to give us commission ideas that would require any kind of infrastructure improvement. And we'll be looking at the St. Louis, uh, Kimball Park, Western Avenue, and Walsh Park. And then, of course, there's the embedded art that, as having a lead artist on the team, the, whatever the trail will be itself will be art embedded throughout. 
I'm not doing that justice. She says it much more eloquently than I. Um, and then really taking a look at this notion of making the trail a living work of art, where art and life come together in the trail and in the community. Um, this is going to be very uniquely Chicago. And um, we really hope you watch and pay attention to this process as we use art not just as a way to make the trail extraordinary physically, it will, but also using the arts as an, as an incredibly powerful tool for civic engagement. And it has really been um, very impressive to us the level that we're using art in, in ways we hadn't imagined before and we wouldn't have been able to do without someone like Francis on the team. So I'm going to turn it over to Kathy to walk you through the plan and we'll sort of go back and forth. Okay. We'll see how well I do with this. Because <laughs> I studied land. I am not with MVVA and have not designed landscapes like this before at this kind of thing. So they have, we have a lot of great befores and afters here. So, you know, we're taking the industrial architecture and trying to make it into a public amenity. And I just want to say we have many of these. Uh, Chicago is a place where, where, you know, all six of the major rail lines converge in the city. That was because of the development of the city and, and industry. And um, we have a lot of remnants. So I would say this may not be the end. Anyway, we have this industrial architecture, and that is what we want to try to make it. You get a flip for me. Um, I think one of the interesting, most interesting things they came up here with here is the way you're going to get up on the path. So remember, we were buying uh, land along it, but how do you get up it? You know, we've seen stairs. They're actually going to dig out of the embankment and take it down to grade so that you will actually have topography within the railroad embankment. And I think that was one of the big design ideas that came up early, and now they're really trying to figure out exactly how you do that. So you'll be coming up and seeing part of the wall, and you'll go up and down within the trail. Uh, yeah, there it is. So yeah, you you go you cross the boulevards. Oh right, because we've already done that with you. And here are our, oh, so what we did, they did is they broke it down into these seven sections. And then at the meeting last night, you could go in and look in detail at each one of these sections. So between Ridgeway and St. Louis, there were, I'd say maps of that section just the big as a screen here. And you could go up and really look in detail at what was going on, which was very nice. So this is the westernmost edge, which is next to the Y which is located right here. So there's a YMCA here that serves the community and will actually be where the trailhead is. And what we have here, it's public right-of-way, a street, and that will be the main western edge. And you will come up, and let's see, oh yes. I think here, they have a lot of, a couple things that phenomenological. Okay, anyway, I don't know if you heard this thing in Japan where they've been watching the cherry blossoms for 700 years and they can measure climate change and other activity because they have records of that. Well, that kind of idea is incorporated into the, into the plantings of this trail. And because you're further east, or further west, you know, you're not on the lakefront, but you're further west, you'll be able to track changes in climate by um, when the trees bloom of a certain type. So anyway, here we're going to have a poplar grove and an enhanced railroad hedge. I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, here's a blow up of, again, this is going to be the Western Observatory uh, where you come up to the trail from a, from a street that dead ends. And what's nice on this end is that there's no actually, um, nobody has a driveway. Conveniently enough, no one has a driveway on Ridgeway here so that um, we can really use it as the trailhead. Here's what it looks like today. And here's the idea, the Western trailhead. Here is St. Louis. Oh, yeah, this is an interesting site as well. So this was uh, quite a while ago, a big plan development. And actually, I think it was a low-income housing developer had bought part of, that's actually railroad property. It was an elevated, an elevated piece, and they bought that part. Um, and then over there by where it says North St. Louis is part, um, is some, I guess, viaduct infrastructure that we want to make into a moment. That's a, a 
Right. So you have, you can kind of see there, you have three sets of columns. So these are things where we want to give artists a chance to think about and make some kind of statement or some kind of interactive space. So this is uh, looking west at that location. There's a housing development. East? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Looking east, that's right. Yeah, right. This is, you can see this is the affordable housing area, and they actually have a little kind of landscape thing between two large developments, so they'll be able to come out onto the, onto the park. And this is the poplar grove. And these are the kinds of, the idea of those trees where you're going to watch and measure, uh, take the dates of when they bloom over time. Um, more planting plans. I think this is the same location, is it? Oh, no, Kimball. Okay, segment two. Um, and this is an area where we were talking about land where the city owned a couple pieces and Trust for Public Land was helping us acquire some. So there were these places where we have the opportunity to go beyond the about 30 feet to 40 feet width of the rail line and actually do something. And so at those places, we need to um, use them as access and parks at the same time. Um, and again, here is, you can see up there, it says Art Commission site for this space. And actually, I was at this table or area last night, and the people were talking about their ideas about what kinds of physical things they want in there. Somebody really wanted shade in this, in this space. And people were given the opportunity to give that so that can be given to the artist. Um, so this is a big space, which um, was a place that actually works like this at grade, and then you come up a railroad kind of siding to get up onto the platform. because the, the, So there was a lot of rail activity here at one time, and now we're dealing with remnants um, to get up on the site and to use as a park space. Uh, this is what, oh yeah, I'm not going to go through great detail of how you, what a cross-section is, um, but this is a cross-section of the location. And you can see where we're, there's going to be a lot of soil movement here, and we have looked at the environmental condition of the soil. So there will be issues of, you know, Pretty much we have found in general that most of the soil in the rail bed is pretty clean. And it only has env topical environmental problems for the most part. We do have a few sites, not on the rail line, that are problems. So, and I think as part of the artist wants to, how do, as being a sustainable project, how do you keep that soil and move it around? So we don't want to you know, dig soil out and haul it away. Um, there is the idea of how do you use it in different places to either build the... Um, the platforms to get up or move it around in other locations. So that's something that will become more evident in the next uh, as we proceed with the design. Oh, I don't know that part. Um, one of the ideas that the landscape architects brought forward early on was to try to reduce the amount of walls. So in places where they can remove it and have a gentle slope instead, they're going to do that. The condition of the of the concrete after compression over 100 years is the quality of stone. So there are places where they're going to cut that out, and particularly here at Kimball where you see these hard surfaces, that a lot of this will be the reused concrete from the wall itself. And then you'll see in some of the later slides the details of the benches. They're using the concrete as the base. So it, it really is a pretty amazing reuse of, you know, again, these are nine feet thick at the bottom, and it's unreinforced concrete. So it's a massive, massive structure. There were some early ideas from uh, an exhibition we did with the Chicago Architecture Club where people thought it would be great to punch into those walls with ideas like um, retail shops, bicycle repair shops, uh, vertical pet cemeteries. Um, but it's not so easy because they are so massive. But uh, again, we're going to reuse them wherever we can. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, sustainable by nature because we're reusing the infrastructure, but then we're trying to build in a lot of different sustainable techniques. Uh, are we moving? Oh, no, I think these are mostly the planting plans, which I'm not going to go over in much detail. Yeah, now, and one of the issues we had a lot of discussions about in phase one is access points and how often should you have an access point um, and, you know, Yes, yes. I, I, I was sort of on the side of not that many because what makes it really special is that you don't have a lot of interruption into it. But then, then there are other people that really like everybody's got to get up there, and if you get up there, you want to get off. So, um, but I, well, I forget how many we settled on. Sort of in the middle. Um, so from this site to, I think, Albany Whipple, 
Oh, no, it's the next one. Well, we have a couple locations where you can see here you've got this site where you can do something, and then you've got a long stretch where pretty much you can't do anything but walk and use a trail. And I, we should point out that this trail is different from the High Line as it does have bicycles because of the nature of the funding. The High Line in New York does not have bicycles. So having bicycle traffic and pedestrian traffic is a whole different design uh, you know, thing, solutions to look at. And we have had discussions about how some people don't want that kind of activity. It's going to be too fast and they're afraid of you know running in. So running into each other. So making sure that that traffic in this, on this elevated line is separated is a key component. Uh, this is Julia de Burgos Park, which was Albany and Whipple, the one we started buying early on. And um, so this is what it'll look like when we finish doing all the acquisition. And you can see if you only have this much, which is what we have right now, you really, it's not that big. It's only 50 feet wide. Um, so... Yeah, a lot of activity, plus we got to get people up on the line and have a lot of activity in the park. Um, here you go, another cross-section. You can see how, you know, topography is being built into this structure um, just to get up to it. Aha, so here's a one of our great views. This is looking um, where you are over Humboldt Boulevard. And I think everybody realizes it's a great view, both north and south. So what they've built in is seating. Um, you know, you can ride through it, but you can also then just look up and down the boulevard. I think the next one has a... So here you have there, I forget, I think they're doing something, I'm sure they're doing something interesting. Oh, here's a concrete. Yeah, so you... So you'll have a nice overlook look over Humboldt Boulevard. And again, here we have I, pretty much the planting. We have an urban savanna, sumac tunnel. And I believe this is really, isn't that just like a cherry tree? Yeah, Crab apple? This, um, I'm not how, sure how to, Amalancher Amalanker, is the um, environmental sentinel that's part of this phenological installation that Kathy talked about earlier. And this is a concept that the artist brought to the team in her work with climate scientists. And what they're telling us is there will be a five-day blooming period from end to end because of the unique placement of the trail and its proximity to the lake. So you will see this plant throughout the trail where others will have like the sumac tunnel. Um, the landscape architects want to have places where people can feel enclosure or exploration. And, and remember, for the most part, we're talking 30 feet. So they're going to have to cram a lot of, of um, exciting landscape as well as a 14-foot-wide multipurpose path. That separates in places. All right. Oh, here's one of our accesses, access points where we really didn't have any land to buy, and we have to use whatever right-of-way we have. So again, Bloomingdale, uh, this embankment is on Bloomingdale most, most places, but has road next to it or alleyway next to it. So here we're trying to use whatever we can just to get up. And pretty much at this space, all you can do is get up on the trail. You, don't, you know, it's not big enough to really do any activity or put in another park. Uh, so here we have, you know, Poplar Grove, Spire Garden. Flowering shrub grove. Oh, this is going to be nice. Oh, yeah, Milwaukee Avenue. What? This was a great one because, actually, Christian, we were park planners, we were out in the field one day coming back from something, and that land was for sale, uh, and we just had to buy it. This is a fabulous spot. I just had to be, it had to be done. And we, got, uh, we actually got state um, park money to buy that. And yes, it goes over Western. So we have a lot going on at this. This is why we had to buy it. There's a lot going on here. You have Western Avenue, um, north to south, and then you have a great shot down Milwaukee. What's the next? What does the next thing look like? Are you? I do. Here's the bridge at Western, and we're going to move it. Yeah. One of the um, exciting reuse aspects that Collins Engineers brought forward. There are 38 bridges along this uh, three-mile stretch, most of them in really good shape because they carried fully loaded freight trains for nearly 100 years. But Western was the one bridge that we knew needed significant repair um, replacement. 
So what Collins Engineers suggested doing was taking the bridge that's existing right now at Ashland, moving it to Western, getting rid of the old bridge, removing the piers so that opened up the traffic at street level, which right now, if you ever go down Western, you know how it narrows down underneath the viaduct. And then they also blew out the retaining walls to create this space underneath. So this is one of our arts commissioning sites to ask the artist to, to take a look at this space and, and tell us their ideas for how to treat it. But um, it's going to be very interesting to watch that bridge being moved from Ashland to Western. And I think we should, at this point, given this bridge idea, so this project at this stage is really a bridge engineer project and a landscape project. 37 bridges, I mean, that's where the big construction is going to be. Um, and we have a good bridge engineers who um, are familiar with bridges within the, in the city and have actually moved bridges before. So, so um, there's a, yeah, this is what you do, you know, you take old bridges and you move them to different locations. And um, that's just a very, it's a very important thing to know about the team. Um, so here it is, um, the site in plan view. And like you say, here's Milwaukee. Where do, oh, West, oh, I'm screwed up. Western was back to right. Same section. There's a bridge at Milwaukee currently that's in good shape, but the clearance underneath is really low. There's a center pier that all these cars hit. Again, it pinches it down. So the bridge engineers came up with the idea of using that existing bridge, but lifting it up and then removing the center pier for support. Uh, here's the existing bridge now. This was taken from the perspective of the blue line that crosses over at Milwaukee. And so they remove those center piers. You see the car headed under there. And then create this bridge that has all the support from above. So again, it creates a better pedestrian experience, a better bikeway experience. This is the most heavily trafficked uh, bicycle route in the city on Milwaukee. And they came up with the idea of a grand stair. Um, we're going to keep that billboard and use it for art. And then there's the access park on the north side. And the Trust for Public Land, we're going to be um, building that park starting next week, Jamie. <laughs> we have a, a very generous grant from MetLife Foundation. And we have to use these grants in a timely way. So we've decided to go ahead and start the construction on the at-grade level improvement. So we're, we're very excited that we can actually say construction is starting ahead of time on the Bloomingdale Trail. Section six, what? No, this is section six. Heading east, what do we get? Oh, again, well, I think you can just see here, we don't have a, another big space, right? We have a space to get up. And this was, we, we knew that we were going to have to find two ways to get up on the trail that did not have land. And actually, going back, we were looking at stairs or bridges. And I think the designers have come up with some much more interesting solutions than, um, well, when we didn't have the designers on board, frankly. Oh, yeah, I think this was, so, and, and in public engagement. So we also have a community advisory committee um, that is made up from a couple of aldermen and some community leaders um, and some other people. And we met with them la the week before the public meeting. And so we went over the whole presentation. We did the art stuff. And their comments were, listen, you got to remember, what some of the people are want to hear about is privacy and security and safety you know don't get into all these big ideas right away you got to get into that stuff and so I think they did listen really well and which was again this format that we had last night was really nice because people could get up and see what you're seeing right here that close oh this is how the privacy screen is going to be and it's going to be and they could see where they were going to be right so there are some of the most vocal people are the people that live right next to the trail and they have serious concerns about you know people there's gonna be a lot of people up here um, so they, they showed where those screens were going to be, they looked, they showed what they'd look like, and then they talked actually about why they could only be as high as they could be, which I didn't know, but they won't hold the landscape if they're too high. So, and people, you know, people understood that, and some of them were quite satisfied. Some of them who were not satisfied for many public meetings are now pretty satisfied. So that's really great. Um, and here we are getting to an existing park. And here's another thing that TPL did um, as part of the partnership. We actually didn't know this piece of land was owned by Maytag, you know, the repairman people. And um, we were, were 
finally finding out about it and actually uh, TPL managed to get that land donated in quite 10 days, very quickly. Um, and as you can see, it's very important because we want to have a couple different ways of getting up on the trail at this location. So here's one, which is a piece we didn't own. We didn't even actually know it was there until they really got into it very deeply. And then on your right there, this is Churchill Park. So this is a very active park, and it's got two things, baseball and a dog park. And don't be thinking about moving this dog park. Um, I was in that one the first two things ago, yeah. Um, so this is what it looks like right now, and you, clearly the park could use an upgrade, and this it will. This is what it looked like. So you can see the both of those um, uses remain, but you have um, you know activity on the top. You have ways to get up there. You have this plaza over what is that, Damon? Um, and then you can't really see the access over there, but it's right next to that multi-story building. And now again, we're getting to, this is the last segment of the trail, very thin until you get to the end. And now on the south there is Walsh Park, which is an, is an existing park. And to the north is actually Park District property, and it has been pro their property for quite a while. It was shops, but it won't be in the future. And, oh yeah, do they, they don't show, oh, is it here? So you see this circle here where it says Pine Grove, and then um, right here, there, there's a stretch here where the homes are so close, you can literally touch them or balconies are overhanging. And some of the, the early requests we got, well, can you just put up a solid wall? And it's like, you don't really want a wall. You're not going to get light. You're not going to get air. And so we adjusted the path to try to move away from those homes since there's a street on the other side between the trail and the homes to the north. And so use the use of a dense pine grove instead of a solid wall um, was a solution that people really liked. And we think um, will provide a much more environmentally friendly um, solution than a, a, a solid wall. Okay, yes. And like, so if you know the area right now, existing park and the trail actually just goes straight into um, uh, underneath the expressway. And then this is, you know, not that pretty. Um, and so the couple of things, are, this is the terminus. And again, we would ideally in the future like to keep going. This, this line does actually end at the Chicago River, but you have to go under the expressway and then over the metro tracks. And there's a lot, not a lot of area to do that once you get under the expressway and then try to get over. You can go down and walk around an alley, but then you end at the river um, and at a very nice old one of those pivot bridges, but that's for the future. Um, but what they've done here is, is open up the wall, and I think the next slide shows that pretty nice. Oh, yeah, so here's the existing condition. This is existing park district. used to be shops. They've torn them down. This is on the north, and it's facing south. Here's the expressway. And so what they're doing here is, um, you know, opening up. They're getting rid of part of that wall. So the two park spaces, which are large, these are probably the largest park spaces on the line, can connect, and you end here, and they're going to have some kind of performance space and is this a this is an art art area too um, one of the ideas that came from the community they wanted more places for kids to skate and use skateboards so what uh, Francis Whitehead came up with well can we turn it into something more than a skate park so it has dual purpose so she's calling this the wheel friendly event plaza and looking at you know using it for skating but then at night maybe using it for performances in there there are calls for uh, requests for concepts for from artists to help us think about how would we take this space and really um, use sound as part of the art and um, make it a space that works for all kinds of venues. So wheel-friendly instead of a skate park, I thought was pretty clever. So at the end of the presentation, which went um, about this long, maybe not quite as long, but we, we explained to people what they were going to see, where the stations were. And then we did a little bit of um, presentation on how to read the plans. We got feedback from the Community Advisory Committee the week before, as Kathy mentioned. And we wanted to make sure we had a balance that we weren't talking down to people. But at the same time, a lot of people in the room aren't planners. So you don't know how to read a plan. So the designers walked them through how to read a plan where were the um, 
what were the legends? Where were the art materials going to be? How, how can you interpret these things that you're seeing? Renderings are really easy, but flat plans are not, not so easy. So this was the uh, landscape legend that you see consistently through the plan. Um, I don't know if you can read this, but these are our comment cards, and uh, we had them translated into Spanish. We had translators there at the event should people need them. And it was really impressive how people took the time and sat down and wrote out their comments, which are extraordinarily important and helpful to us. So we had those to share with people and spent the rest of the evening really just talking to people and hearing their concerns and figuring out solutions. And then we want to leave you with this slide. Um, these girls are a little bit older now since we took these pictures. <laughs> the one on the far left is nine. Um, she wants to, we want to make sure this is finished before she goes to college or learns how to ride a bike. But um, this is a reason why we do this. There are 24,000 children who live along the Bloomingdale Trail. And it is such a high need area when it comes to parks. So that's first and foremost in the Trust for Public Lands mind about why this is so important. But it's also going to be a real icon for the city. I mean, this will take Chicago's legacy of parks to new heights and create green space. It'll connect neighborhoods. But it'll also become a real icon for the city, I think, with every bit as much of uh, impact as the Millennium Park. So that really concludes our presentation. I think we kept it in the allotted time because we wanted to leave plenty of time for questions. But um, I'm going to put Jamie on the spot. Um, Jamie is our director of urban parks, um, an extraordinary planner, has boundless energy. And I just wanted to ask her if she would say a few words, because I know she's very active in APA, and um, ask you if you want to add anything about sort of the lessons learned and what the planner's role has been in this project. Sure. Thanks. Um, so I guess if I'm being put on the spot, the thing that's um, most in my mind today coming off of a public meeting last night is how that went. So I've only been with the Trust for Public Land. I guess it's probably my anniversary one of these days. I'm too busy to even think about when that anniversary might be. But um, there's just been such a change over the last year in the approach to the project and the way the, the public has been engaged. Um, so last night, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, as, as planners, you know, we get a lot of the same faces at our public meetings. And um, I felt really validated last night at the end of the meeting. There were a couple of people that came up to me afterwards and were just so enthusiastic and excited and had really great compliments. And these are people that I also know personally that wouldn't sugarcoat anything for my benefit. <laughs> and they said, this was such a great meeting. We can really tell that from the last meeting, our last public meeting was in May till now, that you guys and the designers and the whole team listened to us. And we could see that the concerns that we've been bringing up for the last year and for some people for the last decade are being addressed in the best way possible. And and I think because we've taken the time to really engage with people and, and educate them and take them through the process, they've also, um, for the most part, have really reasonable expectations about what we can deliver. So the people who saw the 10-foot tall screen next to their house were like, you know, we'd really like it to be like 15 feet. And then when you tell them, well, that's not a reasonable request, they kind of back down. So it's I think as a planner, it's it's nice to see that those efforts in engaging people and having real conversations with people and all the time and the commitment you put into meeting with people and listening to them and reassuring them, yes, we've heard you, yes, we've heard you, but being able to then go back out and show them that you've heard them and demonstrate them and for them to completely unprompted say, thank you so much, I, I know you heard me, that three-hour conversation we had, I saw that reflected at Damon Avenue, thank you so much. So for me as a planner, it, it you know, we, we spin our wheels all the time trying to get people to come to these meetings, and we never have the turnout we want, although we usually have pretty good turnout, but, you know, you're hoping for more, and you're hoping for more, and so for me, having that kind of feedback um, is really, like, the best kind of um, appreciation and payback that you can get is that people feel validated and um, are really taking ownership of the project, and they keep coming back, and they, they've stayed with us through this decade-long journey. Um, so that's been... Um, I think the most rewarding thing. And then the other thing is um, working so closely with the city and its agencies in the park district um, as, an, as, an, as a nonprofit, the, the way everybody works together, although we don't always agree and, and we, there are a lot of issues to be worked out 
a lot, a lot of issues to be worked out. Um, it's and just, quickly. and quickly, as Beth was mentioning, this insane time frame we have to work with, um, the professionalism and the, um, the spirit of collaboration from all of the partners um, has been a real surprise, a, a pleasant surprise for me, um, that all these different people with competing interests and um, bunches of different projects they're working on can come together and be as efficient as possible as you, when you're working with so many different agencies. That's been um, really rewarding as well. So any questions for us? Yeah, so with that, we'll open it up to a Q&A. And just as a reminder, I'll come around with the microphone. Uh, so just wait for me to get there before you ask your question. All right, I have uh, two questions on this. Uh, one of which is that back in my architecture school days, I actually worked on a plan at Churchill Park uh, to solve the vertical circulation problem. And that solution was a bike stand with rentals and repairs, cafe, media stand, and then a ramp to get you up there. And uh, it was a pretty cool project in retrospect, but uh, that was about seven years ago. And since then, I keep hearing, you know, funding's being looked at, it's been secured, we're moving forward. I just want to know how firm are you on 2014? Is the funding in place? Is it going to open in full in 2014? I can, I can answer that. Yeah, you can talk about the so it's a $91 million project. We have $46 million in hand. So we are moving forward. So um, 37 of that is federal USDOT funds that we have in hand, $2 million from the Chicago Park District, and $7 million in private funds that we have already announced. In a couple of months, we'll be announcing another big slug of private funding, but we have enough funding in place to move the phase one construction forward. That sounds awesome. Hell yeah. It's <laughs> happening. And I would just say, the, um, it took our Department of Transportation two tries to get the CMAC money. So, yeah, so, um, you know, you don't get it right away. But, we, yeah, it's, it's on track. And uh, the other question I had is I noticed that in the book that's being passed around the room, the width of the trail, the paved section of the trail is 10 feet with uh, gravel shoulders for uh, joggers and the like. Now, the lakefront trail is 12 feet, and uh, at times I feel it's not wide enough because it's just so heavily used. And I know this will be very heavily used. It's going to be enormously successful. Uh, I guess my question is, does that trail width stay consistent throughout most of the plan where it's really just trail in between these connection points with the rest of the community? And uh, if you've looked at widening the trail? Um, it is a multi-use trail. Um, the latest thinking is that there, the two-foot shoulders on either side um, the designers are proposing this new rubberized surface, not gravel. That's uh, something that we're going to be fine-tuning in the next couple of weeks. Um, where we have room, there will be a separate path. I think you saw them as we went down the trail. There's a nature path that is um, a soft surface path. We're, we're hearing from the running community, their prediction is that this is going to be much more popular for runners than cyclists. Um, we think the cyclists will be using it during the commuting hours. Um, um, actually, yeah, there's one and then further west. Right. Um, we're very keenly aware of the potential conflicts with cyclists, by our, uh, walkers, strollers. Um, we have a conversation at every single meeting about this issue. And one of the things that we're doing through our civic engagement work is working with Active Transportation Alliance, the Chicago Area Runners Association, Fleet Feet Sports, which is not easy to say, to figure out a way, and the Chicago Bicycle Ambassadors, to figure out a way to um, change the culture and model some behavior and do trail etiquette. Uh, one thing I neglected to talk about is there are 12 schools in the Bloomingdale sort of service area, if you will, five of them immediately adjacent to the trail. Um, part of the solution is also through the design and making it a little winding and undulating and trying to slow the bicycle traffic down. But it, it's going to be um, it's going to be a big challenge, and we're we're aware. I don't know if the, if you said this, I was flipping through the slides, but the the full trail width is actually 14 feet, so it's two. It's a 10 foot center part that will probably be concrete. So two 
five feet in each direction, and then two two-foot shoulders on, on the outside on each side. And the other thing about the lakefront, um, if you look in the framework plan that's being passed around, um, we asked the, the phase one team to take a look at other paths for the same reason. And what we found was that the lakefront is a complete anomaly among mixed-use trails across the country. It has the highest use. So it's not likely we would have two anomalies in Chicago. So hopefully it will be successful, as you've described, but not so successful that it's um, the, you know, the lakefront experience. And so that was something that we had to talk a lot with people about, was that everybody has the only, the only real trail experience people share in Chicago is at the lakefront, and everyone kind of rolls their eyes and grumbles under their breath about how it's overcrowded and you're tripping over people, but we think that this won't be as crowded and, and hectic as the lakefront. I just had a couple questions about, um, so the city owns control of the land, wasn't it Canadian Pacific? And then um, the tracks, so is there going to be any uh, kind of shadow remnants like they have at Highline, you know, like what, where the tracks were? Um, the... Um I'll let Kathy talk about where we are on acquisition, but the railroad has made it really clear they want those tracks um, because they're so expensive. And if they're going to keep those, we want them to take up all the railroad ties because it's a waste product and they're crumbling. Um, but I also wanted to comment before I turn this over on the framework plan. Keep in mind when you're looking at that document, that really just set the tone. The, the level of detail that we're at now is so far beyond the framework plan, but I'm really glad you brought up the, the point about the trails because we hadn't talked about the growth in the um, level of analysis that we've put into that and where we are today and trying to figure out how to resolve those conflicts. But it's a tight space, there's no question. And the tension on the team, which has been very interesting, is the landscape architects want more landscape. They want a, a very lush experience, and so the the trail folks and the transportation planners were pushing back, no, you better have a pretty robust trail to accommodate all the users. So it's been a real interesting push and pull. And the, the planners um, among us have really been in the middle of facilitating a very lively debate <laughs> about these multi-use uh, trail development ideas. But you want to talk about the... I will do that. I think another thing to remember is that whole idea of bringing the trail down is such an elegant solution and does so many things. So, you know, if you're going to be going down and then up again, which you don't have on the lakefront in that way, that'll slow bike traffic. It also is really good for privacy. So if, you're if it's close to buildings and you take the trail down so that you're not now looking at somebody's window, you're down, you know, looking at the wall. And then, of course, it gets you up and down. So that, um, you know, this is, this is different. It's not the high line, which doesn't have bikes. Um, the acquisition, like I said, it. it the rail line was on city property, but we have gone to council. They have signed a contract, um, and so we are in the process, actually, I think what we said today, October 15th, of going through the abandonment process. So we have rights to the property, but now it has to go through the federal act of actually abandoning the rail line, um, which has to ha make sure that no other rail user wants it. Um, and we should be through that process, I think, was December, I think is when we, so we expect to actually, the city will hold title to it by the end of the year. They own the structure. They own the structure, and then, of course, the rail line, the way railroad law and railroad activities are, that if there's a user, um, they, they, cannot, they will not abandon it. You know, we bought it for a dollar and for some filing fees because they really did not, they don't really want the property. They're not taking care of the property. Um, so, yeah. A, a quick question. I assume that when you say design complete by December 2-12, this December, that means the end of phase two. Um, we just answered it, so don't bother to answer it further if you, by shaking your head. Um, the other thing is natural plantings, unfortunately, lead, need a lot of maintenance. Things don't stay natural. Weeds very quickly take over natural plantings. What are, what are your plans for ongoing maintenance because it's one thing to build a trail, it's another thing to maintain it. Yeah, and that's why this, we have an inter, this is a very interagency effort. So, you know, we've got Department of Transportation getting the federal money for um, 
for the trail. And the Park District has is actually now the lead on the Phase 2 contract. And we've had a lot of discussions about that. And I think Beth can talk about, um, you know, we, there's plans for a stewardship fund. This is not like any other park in the in the city. And I think we went back and forth about whether we should have water up there or not. Um, so. So as the project coordinator, one of our roles is to develop a long-term stewardship plan because the Park District has made it clear they can provide a certain level of maintenance. And then above and beyond that, we really have to augment the budget and the manpower and the, the whole nine yards. Um, they are very fond of reminding me that the Friends of the High Line raises 90% of the maintenance budget for the High Line in New York. Um, and they do an extraordinary job. If th those of you haven't seen the High Line, I really recommend it. Um, it's a very different experience. But one thing we would aspire to is the level of um, stewardship that they provide for that park is extraordinary. So one of the things that we're charged with is figuring out how to create this long-term stewardship of this three-mile-long park and trail system the Friends of the Bloomingdale Trail, which uh, formed during the Logan Square open space planning, um, has been an advocate and uh, a steward in many ways. And so our commitment to the Friends is to work with them to, to really figure this out. Um, we have a contractual agreement with the Chicago Park District to figure this out. And we're exploring right now the stewardship models that we see working across the country. Um, the Trust for Public Land works in um, pretty much every state across America, and we have a big urban program. And so we're stealing every good idea from our colleagues in the cities where we work across the country. But that really is our next big challenge that we have to figure out over this construction period. And also part of the drive behind our civic engagement is to have people engage from the very beginning in the design and the construction of this so that they'll also care for it in the long run. So one of our uh, funders, Exelon Corporation, um, one of the uh, things we're doing with their gift is to create an environmental education program and working with those schools. Um, Boeing and CNA Insurance are also supporting this project. And um, it's a really big challenge for us. So um, we'd love to come back and tell you where we are, or ask for your ideas. And you know, if any of you, do any of you live near the trail? Do any of you live in any of those four neighborhoods? Bucktown, Wicker Park, Logan Square. Oh, good. So now we can sign you up as volunteers. And if you're not already members of Friends of the Bloomingdale Trail or supporters of the Trust for Public Land, and, and even if you want to just know what's going on, go to bloomingdaletrail.org because we do need your ideas. And, and I think the public meetings going forward, Jamie and I were talking about this at 9 o'clock last night, that the subject of those public meetings, once design is complete, will really turn to what are we going to do with this extraordinary park? Um, because of those stewardship questions, we have won some major victories that we um, heard at the beginning couldn't be done. So irrigation is going to be part of the park. And water fountains. Now, the runners would like year-round water fountains. We understand there are lots of issues around that. But at least there will be water fountains that will work like the water fountains on the lakefront. But each one of those things adds to the budget. But your, your question is one that we talked about just this afternoon. It's a big one. Did you want to add anything? Is the trail going to be open for 24 hours a day? And if it is going to be open, um, are there concerns about vandalism and safety for users late at night? And if it is going to be closed, how are you going to restrict access? Because I, th I think the High Line is not open 24 hours. I don't remember, but I know they lock um, gates. The so. High Line is not open 24 hours, and they have a very easy way to restrict access, and they're 32 feet up in the air. Um, the, the Bloomingdale is only 18 feet, and because of the access to the parks, it would be really difficult to restrict access. The expectation is that this will have park hours like a Chicago Park District Park, and we're working with the Chicago Police Department. Um, they're a part of our agency team. They attend all the community advisory committee meetings. They come to the public meetings. Um, we, we um, In addition to these big public gatherings. We also go to all of the beat meetings in the four neighborhoods. So there is a, a very keen focus on how will this be policed. Um, right now it's a no man's land because it's, you know, there's one 
um, railroad police officer who has to monitor 500 miles of track or some crazy statistic. But um, part of the design is going to accommodate maintenance and emergency vehicles who will be able to get up there and monitor it. We've been talking to the police department about um, patrols and, you know, I, I think just by having an active park that people care about and, you know, that will help a lot as well. So that, that's in development, I guess, is my short answer. Uh, what was the specific justification for the DOT funding? Was it reuse and beautification or, or, or what? And also for the access points, uh, the distance, was there a debate about the distance between the access points? Um, the justification for the DOT funds was through the Congestion Mitigation and Air Quality uh, Program. So it's about providing an alternative transportation corridor that um, gets cars off the people out of cars and onto bikes or walking. And so there's a very um, sophisticated formula for how many CO2 emissions are reduced by the trail by the number of cars that are taken off the road. Um, so it's part of the enhancements program at the Department of Transportation. Um, and the access points, um, and I'll turn this back over to Kathy, you know, there, there was a lot of debate about how far apart those access points needed to be, but I'll, I'll let Kathy answer that. Yeah, we, even from the beginning, we looked at at least, at least a, less than a half a mile, more like a quarter mile. So any, and the basic thing is when you're up there, you're, you're no further than a quarter mile to get on or off. So they're a half a mile, at least a half a mile between each other. Actually, quite a less than a half a mile. But if you're in the middle, that's how far they are. We'll take one more question here. You know, the High Line in New York is such a delight uh, with the pedestrian-only rule, and that gives more room for landscaping. How was it decided to, to have bikes up there also? What... What's the history on that? Well, I think one thing is the community is a very bikey community. Um, and, I mean, there's just a lot of Logan. There's a lot of bikers there. And um, the funding was part of it, that the CMAC money that you just explained is about. Get, we wouldn't have gotten the CMAC money if it was just for pedestrians. So that's part of the reason. It's part of the bicycle plan that CDOT. Yeah, yeah, well, actually, th that's an interesting thing. Because when CDOT did their bike plan, this was actually not a priority bike um, because it didn't connect anything. After we did the Logan Square open space plan and saw it as more of a park and a bike space because there was so much park need in the community, that elevated it in the, the Department of Transportation's bike planning and helped to get the funding. Well, for the sake of time, let that be the final word. Let's have one more round of applause for our speakers. On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Beth White and Kathy Dickett for a thought-provoking and informative program on the Bloomingdale Trail. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.